Welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and I'm always happy to be hanging out in the pod show. My guest today returns to ATBS to unpack how we may navigate through the remainder of 2020 and beyond. Dr. Richard Hamilton rejoins me in the pod ship for a thoughtful conversation about this coronavirus. I hope you find this information helpful. If you are a regular listener, you're familiar with the in-episode ad reads where I ask for your support by becoming a patron. I've never liked the interruption and lack of continuity, so I've decided to pivot and try some new things. If you'd like exclusive content, early access to episodes, an ad-free listening experience, or you feel like being a bit rebellious by paying for a free podcast, you can become a patron right on our homepage at atbsthepodcast.com. And I thank you for that. Good morning, Richard, and welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I appreciate you being here this morning. Right back at you, Jeffrey. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, here we are for what I think is, geez, this is maybe the fifth episode following up on our epigenetic series, if you will. And we're going to have a conversation about the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. Hopefully that doesn't make listeners cringe. We've been dealing with this now for eight plus months, right? We know that there's fatigue, both you know, verbal and physical and emotional and all of those things. The intention with ATBS, the podcast, as always, is to provide useful information in a non-dogmatic, non-judgmental fashion, and hopefully listeners walk away with at least a nugget of information that they didn't know prior to listening, and maybe track that down, learn a little bit more about it, integrate it into their lives. With that, Richard, let's embark on a COVID conversation or, or coronavirus conversation that we can hopefully shed some light on something that people don't know about along the way. Well, let's do that. I think maybe let's start on a really optimistic note, which is that we have, I think, about 180 different vaccine candidates under development. We have about a dozen that are in phase three, and we have three that are on the cusp of deployment. And that's not including the, the vaccine that China has already deployed. So let's just put that in context for just a second, because you know, we started hearing reports of this novel coronavirus. You know, the Chinese were experiencing it last January. You know, it shifted into Italy and Europe in February. So let's call it 12 months to be generous. But the fastest previous vaccine development in history was the mumps vaccine, and it took five years. So we're on the cusp of having a vaccine, and it's going to take a little while to deploy it. We can talk about that in 12 months or less. That's staggeringly fantastic good news. Well, I think that's a great way to start, right? With some some optimism and some good news. It certainly leads to how people feel about vaccines, but that is great news, right? The fact that there are 180 vaccine candidates, 12 out there in front and three that are, you know, phase three and beyond. And you explained to me the other day, and I think this is worth delving into a little bit, basically the reason or the way that that occurred. How did we get to where we are today to have so many vaccine candidates in such a short period of time? 
Yeah, I'm referring back to what you said about, you know, just opening the checkbook, right? Like, oh, we'll, we'll pay. We'll buy. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. One, there's been a staggering series of advancements over the past 40 years in molecular biology, commonly known as quote unquote genetic engineering. So our ability to manipulate nucleic acids, DNA, RNA, et cetera, which are the fundamental building blocks of viruses and therefore be able to come up with these different vaccines, that's one thing, right? So yay, genetic engineering, because without it, we would be back in five, six-year timelines of development for sure. The second big piece is that the U.S. government and, in fact, the Chinese government for their vaccine, they put up the money in advance to scale up the vaccines in advance of conclusive proof of their efficacy. So typically, if a pharmaceutical company was developing a vaccine, they would go through their phase one, phase two, phase three studies in a serial fashion, one after the other. And there would be you know, lots of hemming and hawing and spreadsheets and grinding through data before they made the decision to go ahead and scale up the vaccine. With these vaccines, that decision was made early on to say, we want you to go ahead and start manufacturing these things in parallel with your phase one, phase two, and phase three studies so that you can be ready to go. Having said that, if I looked at the one of the leading candidates, I think the Pfizer vaccine is probably going to get emergency use authorization here in the next week or two. It's a two-step vaccine. So you have an initial inoculation and you have a follow-up one a month or two later. They think they have 50 million doses for the year 2020. And then they can have over a billion doses for 2021, if I'm getting that correct. So 2020 would be another, only another... It's another month or so, right? Yeah. It just shows they're still in the process of scaling it up, I guess that's the point I'm, I'm trying to make, right? Why don't they have a billion doses ready right now? Well, it takes time to do this. Yeah. And a billion is a big number, even though those numbers get thrown around a lot. You know, you and I have had the conversation about different things over the years, like a billion is a very difficult thing to get your head around when you really start to count that, right? That's a lot. I think that's super helpful, right? For people to understand some things have been done very well. That is a great example. Some things haven't been done so well. You also pointed that out in an earlier conversation. You know, everybody made mistakes on this one across the board, uh, around the world, right? We didn't know we didn't know what we were dealing with. People didn't know what was being dealt with, right? So I think it's worth mentioning that, right? You said it early, and it didn't. In this country, there were mistakes, you know, politically from all fronts, and mistakes were made all around the world because we just didn't know, right? Yeah. Well, look, we're humans. Mistakes <laughs> to forgive is divine, to err is human, something like that. I think what I rail against is the politicization of it all. That you know the virus doesn't vote. The virus isn't isn't red or blue or left or right or conservative or liberal or, or whatever. It doesn't care. People trying to make political hay or trying to apportion blame to political leaders. Um, you know, Donald Trump's not the president of Italy, right? You know, so come on. And so yeah, there were mistakes, and I think there continue to be mistakes made. I live, as you know, in Los Angeles County. On Monday, we're going to re-enter the highest level of quarantine, code purple or whatever it is. 
And, you know, they're asking, you know, no public gatherings, no private gatherings outside of your immediate family, you know, curfews. And then what gets exempted? Uh, well, religious services and protests, right? Both sides of the political spectrum, if you will. And so, yes, you know, freedom of religion and freedom of speech are very important. And, you know, we're not asking you to tear up the Constitution, you know, forever. We're asking you to put a few things on pause so that we can, you know, tamp this thing down and save some lives until the vaccines, you know, get deployed. Those become very emotionally charged issues for people. Not me, but for other people, they become very emotionally charged. Well, let's see. I think we're going to get to the portion of the conversation having to do with compliance, right? Which is, there's an emotional component to that. Before we get to that, let's talk about prevention, I think. And then we can kind of circle back around to, uh, you know, these things are emotional. People get emotional about one thing or another, or they get, you know, stuck in ideology or, or what have you. But let's talk about what you refer to as the five pillars of prevention. Uh, yeah. So in the absence of a vaccine or herd immunity through, you know, just everybody having been infected, what are the steps that we can take? And everybody's been hearing about most of these, I think. You know, the first is just distancing. If you sealed yourself into a big Tupperware container, <laughs> you wouldn't get infected. <laughs> so, but we're social creatures and, you know, we need to go to the grocery store, we need to go to the gas station and we love to go to bars and restaurants and have people over. And that's really where it, it seems to spread. And, you know, if your child is coming home from college, you're not quarantining them in their bedroom for two weeks and, and things like that. So distancing works. If we look at Australia, you know, Australia took some very, very aggressive measures including closing their borders, and they look like they've got it under control. They, they're not having even thousands of new cases. The United States, as we speak, I think they reported 200,000 cases yesterday, which again was probably a combination with Thanksgiving, whatever. But so distancing, distancing works for sure. Quite a while ago, you said to me like, look, Jeff, imagine somebody standing there, like when you're around somebody who's smoking a cigarette, think about how far you can smell that smoke from them right? That's coming out of their mouth. It's coming out of their lungs. Especially if you're downwind. Yeah. If you're downwind, like, boom, it's right there. Right. So I think you also said, imagine if somebody was farting and, and you know, how far does that spread? Right. Right. So that, that's a good segue into the next one, which, you know, has generated public controversy, which is masking, which is okay. So now imagine somebody smoking, but wearing a mask. They're, you know, taking a drag on their cigarette and then they're covering their face with a mask and then they're exhaling into the mask. It's not going to go nearly as far. It's not going to contain it 100%, right? It's not a panacea. It is going to cut down the distance. And so, again, in a world populated by humans who want to talk to one another and interact with one another, even if you're six feet apart, a mask is still going to have a preventive effect. So wear one. What is the downside of wearing a mask Yes, they can be a little bit uncomfortable. Yes, most people don't know how to wear them and they're, you know, adjusting them with their hands and they comply very poorly with it. But even a little bit helps. And again, back to the smoker analogy, I think that's one that everybody can see that, yeah, you know, if Jeff was standing six feet from me smoking a cigarette but was wearing a mask, I'd have a much lower chance of getting that. So I think the resistance against mask wearing is you know, one has become politicized and is and touches on your favorite topic of, you know, don't tread on me. Don't tell me what to do. Don't infringe my civil liberties. 
So there's distancing, there's masking, there's hand washing and sanitizing. And I'd like to believe people are good at that. Perhaps the two topics that get not as much attention as they should, one is just fitness. If we look at COVID hospitalizations, 90% of COVID hospitalizations have clear underlying comorbidities. And the leading one is hypertension, high blood pressure, followed by type 2 diabetes, which is adult onset diabetes, obesity, uh, and cardiovascular disease. And so it's biology. There are very few absolutes. But by and large, if you imagine a world where 40% of Americans didn't have high blood pressure, or 75% of Americans weren't overweight or obese, you know, what would the impact of this coronavirus be? Well, probably 90% less than it is today. And if you look at the hospitalization numbers and you look at the death numbers and you, you say, well, okay, well, this could, should only have been 10% of that. Well, you're back to, you know, a kind of a normal influenza year. And yet, you don't really read very much. You read a little bit about vitamin D in literature, but you don't really see the media picking that up and discussing it. You know, there's talk about a national mask mandate. You have to wear a mask if you leave your house, but there isn't talk of a national fitness mandate. Like you have to have a certain BMI before you're allowed out of your house. Again, I'm stating the extreme to be provocative, but we don't seem to be talking about that component of it. That's a tough one, right? And we, you and I have had the fitness conversation so many times over the years. We could probably spend a whole episode on that. So thank you for, you know, you know, sharing the extreme to be provocative because it's worthy of thought and, you know, consideration. Don't neglect your health and wellness. I think what's more interesting about it in the context of this conversation, Jeff, why is no one talking about it? In other words, you know, we'll have this conversation about where are we getting our news from and who's deciding what we hear and why, you know, I can go to Google and find dozens and dozens of articles about masking and the pros and cons of masking. And they're going to outnumber the number of articles about COVID and fitness 100 to 1, right? So somebody somewhere doesn't think this is worthy of discussion. And that is curious to me because, you know, when you talk about a 90% reduction, I'm not sure masks are are having that effect. I'm not sure masks are reducing things by 90%. And yet fitness would reduce hospitalizations by 90%. And we don't seem to be talking about it. And that is a bit of a head scratcher for me. Well, I think that's going to be interesting. We still have another piece on the pillar of prevention, but we're probably going to come back to that. Taking agency, accepting the agency of self and what our responsibilities in life are. And I've said this, my gosh, it just comes up all the time that we can and ought to take responsibility for our own actions. It came up in an episode that I was listening to a couple of days ago, just I was doing show notes for it. One of my friends had asked me after listening to the first episode, like, hey, I've got kids who surf. Is there any way I can interact with Chris and talk to him about behavior of sharks and surfing and what should they wear and so on and so forth? And in the most recent episode that Chris and I did talked about people look at the surf report from home and then they decide where they're going to go surfing. They don't necessarily go to that location and look at the life and the liveliness of the ocean, seals, birds, fish, what's going on there. Is it fishy? Is it, is it active? 
Is it, oh, well, if there are a lot of seals and there may very well be sharks, but that doesn't seem to happen that often, right? So he was talking about, look, you would no sooner walk into the Serengeti without knowing what's going on from a wildlife perspective than probably fly to the moon trying to flap your arms. And so why is it that people assume that because that's where they want to go in the ocean, because that's where the surf is, that they can just go there and not have any repercussions if there are happen to be sharks in the water. And you and I have talked about, you know, errors of omission versus errors of commission for, you know, years. And so here we are in this, you know, coronavirus prevention conversation. And and I think it all kind of dovetails back in together. We ought to be taking responsibility ourselves it's not somebody else's back to the fitness piece oh that mean you mean i have to do that <laughs> you mean i have to put myself in shape i uh, that's not easy i'm in the process of putting my fitness pieces back together right as we speak is it easy no you know this after uh, almost five months of pneumonia starting is hard Starting is hard and and maintaining like, okay, well, that wasn't easy. Going for a walk, that wasn't easy. And it doesn't happen overnight and it takes a sustained effort. Yeah, we're humans. We don't like those things. And we got to push through it. Like I shared this with somebody the other day that you know, what you and I have talked about, even if you're in good shape, the first seven or eight minutes suck. If you get on the treadmill or you get on the spin bike or whatever, and then you break through and go, oh, yeah. So if you're not in shape, you know, the every everything to start with sucks. It hurts. Uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but as we get older, I don't want to say that the length of time increases, but that you know the first five or ten minutes of exercise are not fun. No, you have to know that you can get past it, and that once you're limbered up, that you can go hard. Anyways, let's get back to the fifth pillar, which again doesn't seem to get quite as much ascension as I think it should, and that's just testing. You know, this is a virus that has a large, large asymptomatic rate. So the number of people who are carrying the virus and are infectious, but don't know it. And in influenza, that number is typically you know, around 15% or so. So about 15% of people you know, who are infected with influenza are carrying it about and they're not feeling symptoms. The number with this coronavirus seems to be quite a bit higher. In some instances, again, you know, the data varies and, and jumps all over the place, but about as high as 50%. And then we have super spreaders or people who have R not values uh, that would be more akin to measles. Right? Eight, 10 is the, the number of people that they go on to infect. No, they're not doing this knowingly. Nobody, nobody's that callous. And so the only way to identify them is then through widespread testing. And here I think we can do much, much better than what we've done. We, we still rely on a, in, in my view, fairly outdated hub and spokes laboratory model where you're going someplace to get a nasal sample to be then sent into a central laboratory to have the PCR test deployed. And I think what we need are mechanisms to forward deploy the test so that the test can be, you know, you go to the grocery store and as you enter your, you know, a nasal swab gets taken. And by the time you're done with your shopping, you're, you have your test results. And the, the technology exists to do that. We just need to put that infrastructure in place. Part and parcel with that in my mind is also contact tracking software, which now 
has been deployed, but hasn't been deployed in our states. So it's not available in Utah or California, but both Google and Apple have come up with a Bluetooth-based system, as long as you've got a phone that's less than five years old, where they can tell you if you've been within six feet of somebody else who's been diagnosed. And so those are two things that we really, really need to get better at because you know, this is the third coronavirus pandemic of the 21st century. There's almost certainly going to be another one, the severity of which I'm not going to sit here and predict. But we've had SARS, we've had MERS, now we've had COVID-2. We can get better at this. And widespread forward-deployed testing and contact tracing you know, need to be at the top of our list. Yeah, fascinating. You know, that we can get better, we can learn from this, the likelihood of when the next pandemic occurs, not if in the world in which we live today and what can we do better. So I want to go back for a second on the testing front and the um, asymptomatic piece, which I've had a couple of experiences that I'm familiar with where two people that I know, in one case pretty distantly and the other, you know, a little less distantly, but not very close, have knowingly come into contact with someone who tested positive. And their choice, their decision was, I'm just going to wait and see if I end up with symptoms, not go get tested. Did they choose to quarantine during that time? No, they chose to sit tight. I'm just going to sit tight and see if I get any symptoms. So is that a is that a reflection? And I don't I don't know these people. This is, do you think that's a reflection of the difficulty of obtaining a test result? Like, oh, I got to go stand in line, and oh, I got to make sure my health insurance covers it. And, no, it's going to take all this time. Or was it a reflection of I think what you're driving is that they didn't realize that they might be in fact asymptomatic and infective. I'm fairly certain that one of them has to do with insurance and cost, and the other I don't really know. I think maybe just inconvenience. I just don't want to know, or she didn't really want to know. So fascinating, right? But like if testing were easier, cheap, free, well, you know, whatever, I don't know exactly, but if you could get a test and it didn't feel like it was going up and tickling your brain and it was quick, you didn't have to wait days. It seems to me that some of those things, some of those resistance factors would go away. Yeah. Then we get into this interesting conversation about compliance. So there's compliance with distancing, there's compliance with masking, there's compliance with washing, there's compliance with fitness, which we know is is poor. We just touched on an example of compliance with testing. And now going forward, we're going to have the issue of compliance with vaccination. Yeah. So why is compliance so difficult or uncomfortable? Nobody wants to be told what to do hey, what you really need to do is get yourself fit. You do well to lose those 15 pounds or 20 pounds. Let's ask ourselves this question. We went across all the all these things. So, so vaccination, testing, fitness, hand washing, masking, quarantining. Do you think the same people who are being non-compliant about masking, for example, are going to be the same people who are non-compliant about vaccination? In other words, does non-compliance cut across to all of those things? Or is there simply some people who say, I'm not going to get vaccinated. I'll do all this other stuff, but I'm not going to get vaccinated. How do you you think that shakes out? My first impression when you say this is just opinion, nothing more, I think there are a whole bunch of people out there that don't want to wear masks. 
for whatever reason. And I've seen some of them and I marvel at it, you know, at Home Depot or something. I'm like, it says to wear a mask when you walk through the front door and there are people walking around without masks. And it's almost like an act of defiance. Would they be lining up for a vaccine? Hmm. I'm thinking many would because they might fall into the category of, well, there's a pill for that. That's a completely just opinion. First thing that dropped into my mind, right? Like based in anything other than, you know, I don't know shit. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know some people who are really solidly compliant on the fronts that you're talking about, the five pillars. And I've had some conversations and are somewhat averse to the idea of a vaccine because they don't like the idea that, you know, they're going to put something foreign in their body and, you know, for what all the you know, various reasons. But so I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of it is, you know, who's telling me what to do, right? And how are they telling me how to do it? And I think, well, let's see if we can come up with some generalizations. Nobody wants to be told what to do by the leader of the political party they oppose. If you're a Democrat, the last thing you want is Donald Trump telling you what to do, right? And probably vice versa. So maybe we should take the recommendations out of the hands of politicians and put it in the hands of, well, scientists, physicians. I think there's probably a role for celebrities to play in this, to encourage people to model certain behaviors, right? Tom Hanks and his wife were infected with COVID and, and survived it. And, you know, there's probably more that can be done in the way of public service messaging there. You know, the vaccine thing is interesting to me because, you know, it's going to be, you know, certainly the most humane way to get to herd immunity. We could get to herd immunity just by letting the virus run rampant. And then, you know, at some point you'll have, you know, 70% of the people will have antibodies and be immune to the, to the virus unless it mutates, which it doesn't seem to be doing. We can drill down on that. Of, you know, how long do we think immunity is going to last? Is, is this particular coronavirus more likely to be like the chickenpox where you get immunity for most of your life? Or is it going to be like influenza where the virus actually changes and so that it, the immunity you know, typically only lasts uh, you know, 12 or 24 months or so? But the vaccination thing, we probably should discuss it because we're on the cusp of these vaccines being approved. We're going to be in the middle of this pandemic that is going to continue to wreak economic havoc over the next few months because, you know, we're, as I said earlier, hundreds of thousands of cases per day in the United States. And I think the, what do you know, non-compliance of many people over the Thanksgiving holiday is going to be like throwing gasoline on a fire. So vaccines. You know, I think we have to talk about Andrew Wakefield. Andrew Wakefield was the author of a study that was published in the Lancet magazine almost two decades ago, where he drew an association between the MMR vaccine, which is the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and autism. And this led to a bunch of people to then claim that vaccination causes autism. So let's unpack that just a little bit. So first of all, Wakefield's study involved 12 children. 12, 1, 2. It was also a case report. And those are, you know, they're detailed stories about particular patients' histories, but they're basically just stories. And so they're considered, you know, the weakest kind of study. They can be useful, but they're certainly not the, the kind of evidence you would want to see in terms of, you know, a double-blinded study to make claims about something like vaccine and autism. Again, 12 people. When they followed up 
with the families of each of the 12 kids in the study, they found no case was free of misreporting or alterization. In other words, Wakefield, who was the lead author of the report, he manipulated his data. He cheated. He also had major financial conflicts of interest. While he was busy trying to discredit the combination MMR vaccine, he was conveniently filing patents for single disease vaccinations. And most importantly, he never, he nor anybody else ever replicated his findings. So they went on to test over 100,000 children and found no linkage with autism. And after that, they did another study where they looked at 600,000 children and found no link. Since then, the paper was retracted and Andrew Wakefield had his medical license revoked. That's probably a side of the story that people who are trepidatious about getting vaccines don't know. That he only studied 12 people, that he manipulated his data. He probably should have gone to jail, but he lost his medical license. So in the scientific world, he is regarded as a fraud, and his study has been completely debunked. Why isn't that front and center for the people who are perhaps understandably anxious about a vaccine? Why aren't they being told the facts behind that? Which goes right to something we talked about just before we flipped on the mics, which is where are people getting their information? So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you have the scientific background. You're a molecular biologist. You, you know, you'll go to PubMed and you'll go, you know, you know where you want to go to do your research. I also know that you have incredible retention and recall and the ability to consume a lot of data, which, you know, myself as the, another example, like, I don't want to read a bunch of papers, but I also want to be aware that I, I don't want to be spoon fed, you know, information from one source that is biased. So where do we get our information? How do we do this? If somebody goes, oh, well, that's helpful. <laughs> I'm going to go look there, or I'm going to listen to this where it's, you know, less politicized and less biased information. Yeah, uh, not easy. Michael Crichton, who the, the late Michael Crichton, he he was the author of Jurassic Park. He was a, trained as an MD at Harvard, and then wrote his first book, uh, The Andromeda Strain. Went on to become a successful, you know, screenwriter and producer, et cetera, et cetera. But he referred to the internet not as the information age but the disinformation age, because it's so easy to just pump out disinformation that's, you know, politically slanted and opinionated. And he said, you know, someday people will subscribe, they'll pay for access to unbiased, accurate news. And I've, I've just seen a couple of these things pop up now. There's, I think, something called the Real News Network, and there's another one Thing called Catalyst or something like that. I haven't really investigated them, but for a monthly subscription, you get again what they claim to be is you know unbiased, accurate news. I think it's an interesting uh, business model. For myself, uh, you know, on things scientific, I rely on peer-reviewed published literature. And again, most people don't understand what it means to have something be peer-reviewed and published when you publish in, in reputable scientific journals, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, Science, Nature, Cell, uh, the Journal of Molecular Biology, whatever it is, you have to provide all the reagents that you used in that experiment so that an independent third party can replicate your results. Those are the rules of publication. And your results get reviewed by 
other scientists, quote unquote, your peers, you don't get to select who reviews your work. You know, they'll ask you questions, they'll ask for clarifications, you need to provide this evidence. And so you don't just publish something like, oh, I went and, you know, I corrected all my typos and boom, it's published. No, it's, it's usually an iterative process that can take some time of people questioning your results. How did you get to this conclusion? How did you get to that conclusion? And then boom, you can publish it. But if somebody then comes along and cannot replicate that, as was the case with Andrew Wakefield's fraudulent claims about vaccine and autism links, well, in his case, he lost his medical license. You know, for most people, it's the end of a scientific career because you, you're not going to get funding. The granting process for government grants is a peer process. It's not a government employee that decides. All your other peers decide which applications are most worthy. And so it's a very, very rigorous system. I won't say it's perfect. Can you imagine if you had something like that in politics? <laughs> Politicians wouldn't be able to give speeches <laughs> because, right, because they lie so much. So I think you really got to question who you're getting your news from. And I always ask myself the, the Latin phrase, que bono, right? Who, who benefits? Who is giving me this news and what do they have to benefit by spinning it in one direction or another? And you just do your best to think independently. Yeah. Which is challenging for, <laughs> we're humans. You know, it's so easy to go looking and say, well, here's the answer. A really basic example, I was sitting in the house talking to my family and the question came up, what's the difference between a sweet potato and a yam? And I said, well, let's go find out. You know, so you Google and sweet potato, yam, whatever. And, you know, the first two top results were in direct conflict with each other. You know, one's like, oh, they're exactly the same thing. And the next one was, no, they're two distinct different. And so just as a very, very basic example, like caution is advised. You can't believe everything that you read. So choose wisely. Yeah. And be aware of your own confirmation bias. We all have confirmation bias. We all tend to process information in a way that supports our pre-existing beliefs. You know, social media is a good example of this. Let's just take as an example, you know, somebody who's on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. And, you know, if you keep liking links from, you know, the Cato Institute or, you know, Make America Great or The Federalist or whatever it is, guess what's going to fill up your newsfeed, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, a bunch of that stuff. And the same thing happens over on the left, right? And so we, we're all victims of confirmation bias. And I think, you know, as, as Feynman said, you know, at the end of the day, the easiest person to fool is yourself. So you've really got to try and step back from your own confirmation bias to say, okay, what do I really know? What preconceived notions am I bringing to the table that I need to question, right? I'm bringing a preconceived notion to the table that vaccines are dangerous. Well, let's unpack that a little bit as we did earlier. Oh, wait, turns out they're not. Right. Turns out that was fraudulent and I need to adjust my thinking. And there's, you know, we can come up with example after example after example. Right. Right. Beware your own confirmation bias. Can we talk about, and we touched on it a little bit, you know, it's not if there'll be another pandemic in our lives in the future, but when and when, what have we learned? Let's talk a little bit about why that is. Just, you know, I mean, I think I know. Uh, you know, the world in which we live, where we can move around so quickly 
And so things can spread very quickly. What do we need to know from your perspective, Dr. Hamilton, you know, as we look into the future relating to pandemics, and then we can talk a little bit about what we learned, and then I'd love to circle back to the positives. Yeah, well, there's there's soon to be 8 billion of us living on the planet. You know, we are all potential reservoirs for a wide variety of viruses. In many geographies, we live in close cohabitation with other animals. Influenza is a great example of this. I mean, we refer to influenza oftentimes by the name of the animal that the influenza virus jumped, you know, from that animal to you, right? You hear about the swine flu, you hear about the bird flu. Well, it's because, you know, pigs and chickens and horses and dogs, you know, they're all reservoirs for various subtypes of influenza. And yeah, every so often they, you know, they mutate and they make the jump to humans. And the same thing for coronaviruses and adenoviruses and rotaviruses, and there's more to go around. So I think it's just a little bit of a numbers game. You know, when we have 8 billion of us on the planet and we're not so isolated anymore, it's pretty easy to jump on a plane in Salt Lake City and, you know, you can be in Hong Kong. You can, right, you can be in Moscow. We're mobile in a way that the human species has never, ever been in its history. Uh, and so that's going to lead to more. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways we can get better at it. I, I hope in retrospect that this pandemic turned out to be good practice, that we'll have the four deployed testing, that we'll have the contact tracing, and that we'll figure out this compliance piece that when the next time comes and we ask people to distance and mask and wash, that they'll do it. Well, we'll certainly have familiarity, right? Like, like what kind of mask do I need? Where do I get it? Right? Like we just went through, you know, in the past eight, 10 months, we've been through like, okay, I should have this stuff on hand, right? Like, doesn't mean we need to have cases upon cases upon cases of toilet paper, for goodness sake, but we can be better prepared, right? We can be because the next one could be so much worse. It could be so much worse. You know, this is at the end of the day, a fairly mild virus in terms of its fatality rate. And it, yeah, it does disproportionately infect the aged, hypertensive, type 2 diabetics, et cetera. But, you know, the lethality rate is not Ebola that kills 50 or 60% of the people it infects. If that were the case, right, that's, you know, it's, it would be just a horror, just a horror. And there's no theoretical basis to say that could never happen. It could evolutionarily, viruses tend to evolve towards being more virulent and less lethal. And I think there's some evidence to suggest that that's already happening with coronavirus. But when they first emerge into the population, and, and again, the you know one of the worst pandemics in human history was the, the 1917-1918 influenza pandemic, the fatality rate was really skewed towards healthy young adults. And it had a fatality rate in, in those populations of some 25%. It was horrible. And in fact, uh, Dana Sovell wrote a great book called Influenza that really unpacked that pandemic. And more than likely, more people died of influenza than died in World War I, for sure, when you consider it on a worldwide basis. So the next one could be so much worse. Let's learn from this time around, and let's try and unpack these things that are underlying 
compliance and where people are getting their information from so that they decide whether or not to comply. Because at the end of the day, as we've discussed, all those things work. Distancing works. Masking works. Hand sanitizing works. Fitness works. Testing works. Vaccines work. If we all did those things, we'd never have another pandemic again. But we're going to. So how do we get better at doing those things and the underlying drivers of noncompliance with those things? So, Richard, you know, thank you for all of those pieces. I would like to go back to looking forward. OK, this one could be so much worse. What have we learned? We know what works. And as you said, you know, really early on, there is a vaccine on the horizon. There are vaccines on the horizon, but we all will do well to step up our compliance with, you know, prevention. Yeah, let's talk about that, Jeff. So what are the things that are on my mind as we go into what I refer to as the winter of our discontent? Because we are coming into cold and flu season. We see it surging across the Northern Hemisphere, not just in North America, but in Europe as well. We hear, you know, on this podcast and in the media that, you know, vaccines appear to be effective and are eminent, but now is when we need to step up our game. Now is when you really need to take your distancing, masking, hand sanitizing, fitness, testing. You need to take that seriously because I'm not first in line for a vaccine, right? The first in line for the vaccine is, you know, some 45-year-old nurse working in a COVID ward. She deserves that vaccine. You know, first in line should be, you know, our senior citizens. You know, we're not first in line. We're just not. And so until the at-risk population has been vaccinated, I would encourage everyone listening to redouble their efforts to distance themselves, to wear their mask, you know, to wash their hands frequently, and to get fit and get yourself tested if you're uncertain. Sound advice. And you've said that to me before, and I appreciate it, like, because so many people are, you know, when you talk to people like, oh, I'm so tired of this. And I'm tired of isolation and not seeing people. And, you know, there are a lot of single people out there in the world who live by themselves. And, you know, this is brutal from that perspective. You said earlier, we are social creatures. And if you live alone and you can't go see people and you can't socialize, it the fatigue really, really sets in. So appreciate you saying, and, and I'll reiterate you know, now's the time to redouble the efforts. And I've shared that with people since we had that conversation, you know, week, 10 days ago. Now's the time to be, you know, really resilient, really like, okay, I can do this, right? We've been in the game for a good long while. Uh, well, I can stay in the game. I can continue and I can actually redouble and improve my prevention efforts. So I appreciate it, Richard. You're always welcome on ATBS, the podcast. You are always full of wonderful information and the scientific perspective is so greatly appreciated. I can't tell you how much I respect it and I appreciate it. And I hope that people listening, I hope you all got something out of this. So Richard, thank you so much for joining me in the podship here on ATBS, the podcast yet again. Let me just end with a, something that a, a mutual friend of ours posted on her Facebook page that said, Seeing how some people wear their masks, I now understand how contraceptives fail, right? So 
be compliant, people. Right, be compliant. Distancing means distancing. Masking means masking. Hand sanitizer means hand sanitizer. Fitness means fitness. Testing means testing. Don't rationalize that you're doing it because you've got a handkerchief as a bandana tied around your nose. Mm. Mm. Come on. Yeah, thank you. Let's get serious because their lives to be saved here over the next three or four months. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I'm going to say thank you on ATBS, the podcast. And I am going to segue, and I'm actually going to share this with the listeners that presented Richard with a few questions via text yesterday. I'm going to ask those questions, but I'm going to ask them behind the Patreon link, if you will. So they will be for patrons only, the answers. And one of those questions is, and I'll share it, at 58 years old, you've been around for a little while. And the question is, you know, what wisdom, what have you learned? If you had an opportunity to share some nuggets of information and knowledge and wisdom with your 22-year-old self, what would they be? And that answer is going to be over on some things big and small for patrons only. So thank you for listening to ATBS, the podcast. Thank you for supporting. Hope you got something good out of it, something that is useful out of this episode. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to spread the word, social media platforms, become a patron if you'd like. All of it helps a great deal. So thanks again, Dr. Hamilton, my good friend, Richard. And Thank you for listening to ATBS, the podcast, and this episode with Dr. Richard Hamilton. Your continued interest inspires me to explore further, and I thank you for that. Until next time, be safe and be smart.